Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Our speaker this evening is the delegate for priests in the Diocese of Arlington, a, p a position he now holds after three years as pastor of St. John the Beloved Catholic Church in McLean, Virginia. He received a Master of Arts degree from the Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas, the Angelicum in Rome in 1996, and was ordained a priest the same year. Father Scalia has published articles in various periodicals, including This Rock, First Things, Adoramus, the Adoramus Bulletin, Human Life Review, and is currently serving as chaplain of the Arlington Diocese Courage Chapter. He has also served as the parochial vicar, vicar at St. Bernadette's in Springfield, St. Patrick's in Fredericksburg, and St. Rita's in Alexandria. He's a member of the Institute of Catholic Culture's Board of Advisors and has given numerous lectures on faith, morality, and modern challenges to orthodoxy. Please join me in welcoming Father Paul Scalia. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Almighty God and Father, who call us to enter into your eternal rest, grant to us a desire for that rest, that we may tailor everything in our lives to resting in you and finding peace in your fatherly gaze upon us and come to know you in eternity, where we will know that peace that rest, that refreshment and fulfillment for which we long. We pray this invoking the intercession of the Blessed Virgin Mary, our mother and our queen, St. Joseph, her most chaste spouse. And we pray this in the name of Jesus the Lord. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it, because on it God rested from all his work which he had done in creation. Be still and know that I am God, from the Psalms. And then Aristotle says to us, we work in order to be at leisure. St. Thomas tells us the reason why the philosopher can be compared to the poet is that both are concerned with wonder. And finally, a somewhat well-known quote from Blaise Pascal, I have discovered that all human misfortune comes from one thing, which is not knowing how to remain quietly in one room. It is my hope that this evening you will, you will come to see my presentation as a complete waste of time <laughs> and useless. You have all heard of the purpose-driven life. Well, I, I want you to embrace the unpurpose-driven life. If you do not, then I will have failed. And I, I hope this becomes clear as we move through this evening's talk. My topic this evening is Leisure, the Basis of Culture. And it's a title, of course, as many of you know, that comes from a wonderful little book by Joseph Pieper. The book comes, in turn, from a lecture that the German Thomistic philosopher gave in Bonn in 1947. So it's important to consider first the context of this work that I'd like to reflect on. Pieper was writing immediately after the Second World War, and in Germany, no less. 
It was a place, as he himself notes, that needed to be rebuilt. There was a lot of work to be done. And yet, here comes this philosopher from the ivory tower to speak about the importance, in fact, about the primacy of leisure. The time of his writing, of course, is also the outset of the Second World, uh, of the, um, the Cold War, rather. The Cold War, that decades-long standoff, not just between the Soviet Union and, and the United States, but really between two different views of man himself. And again, the issue of work was at the center of this. Was work for the state, for the corporation, for the economy? And in the midst of all of this, this dispute over the meaning of work, Pieper plunks down a book on leisure. And not only that, but that he, can, he contends that the real purpose of work is leisure. We work not for the state, not for the corporation, not to get ahead, not just to make money, but in order to rest. That is the purpose. Now, as, off, as is often the case, what may have seemed out of place at first has proven to be prophetic years later. This book has grown only more relevant as the years have gone by. And I think we can, can see that just in a simple consideration of the way we live. How many in our culture find the weekend to be truly restful and use it for that? Why is it that the stores and the roads are more crowded on the weekend? Why is it that, that people use Sunday to catch up on all of these different th tasks they have to do and then complain on Monday that they didn't get any rest? Is the Sabbath restful? Or are we using it just to catch up on things that we didn't get done during the week? And then there's that maddening question that was asked of me about this time last year, maybe a little later. I'd been to the beach for a week, and somebody said, well, what'd you do at the beach? <laughs> I didn't do anything. It was the beach. <laughs> the reason for going there was not to do anything. Or rather, to put it positively, it was to do nothing. <laughs> we now live in the total work culture that Joseph Pieper warns us about in this book. And by that, I don't mean work necessarily in the sense of you know, the store, the business, the firm, or the office, but work in the sense of always needing to be doing something. In the Confessions, St. Augustine speaks of God as always active, always at rest. We get the first part down pretty well. The second part we don't imitate uh, as well, do we? We are always doing. Even when we're resting today, we are doing. The great lie of technology, those devices that you own or that own you, those devices that you wear or that are wearing you, uh, the, the promise was that you'd be able to get away from things but you know, not lose touch, and now the reality is that well, you've discovered it's a leash, and work is always there. We're always able to be interrupted. So the reality is now that we can't escape work at all. It's always with us. And we would expect, perhaps, that this total work culture would produce a tremendous vibrancy and liveliness. In fact, it's only with the arrival of this kind of society that something else arrives. Boredom. The word didn't even exist before the 19th century because there was no need for it. The culture of always doing produced something unknown until then. Ennui. Boredom. Because if we don't have something to do, we're at a loss. We are bored. Now, we all know that the complaint, I'm bored, is a very bad one. It shows a problem not with the world, but with the person's grasp of reality. 
A college professor told us that the reason we were bored is because we were boring. <laughs> this was just a variation on uh, Chesterton's line that there are no uninteresting things, only uninterested people. So Pieper's book remains even more important today. And the solution to all this, as you, as you may guess, is not to do something but to do nothing. More to the point, it is to learn what true leisure is. So to that end, what I'd like to do this evening is give an overview of the book to make Pieper's point and to apply it today. And so doing, I'm going to just give a survey of three principal points that he makes in the book. And those are, first and most importantly, knowledge, what human knowledge is. Second, leisure itself. And third, worship. Especially in light of Father Hezekiah's remarks, I apologize in advance if some of this seems too philosophical. <laughs> I, I assure you it will not be too philosophical because I am not a philosopher. So th th that will keep it simple. But Joseph Pieper was a philosopher. And more importantly, this book and this topic is concerned not just with sociological or cultural realities, although it touches on them, but it is concerned with an understanding of the human person, on what it means to be human and to live an authentically human life. And those, of course, are concerns that are before us today. So first, let's begin with knowledge, as Pieper does in his book, which is counterintuitive, isn't it? Because we associate knowledge with labor and with work, study, research, and so on. And Pieper points out that that's precisely the problem. He notes that the Greek word for leisure, skole, is the origin of the Latin word skola, schule in, in German, school in English. The very etymology indicates a connection between knowledge and leisure. The answer gets, as Pieper notes, to the very roots of a philosophical and theological understanding of the human person. So again, this is not a discussion of what is at the edges of human life, but engages the very foundations of what it means to be human. Pieper gives an overview on how the concept of knowledge changed in the modern world with modern philosophy. He makes three points about the modern view of knowledge, and these three points carry through in the different sections of, of his book. Now, again, he's a philosopher. He's addressing philosophical things. But he's a good philosopher, which means he's also aware of how these things can and will play out in the lives of us non-philosophers. So the first point he makes about modern philosophy is that its view of knowledge is exclusively active and outward. The ancients and the medievals spoke of two different kinds of knowledge. There was ratio, which is sort of a discursive reasoning and examining something, kind of picking it apart. But then there was intellectus, which is just a, a receiving of what is true. That kind of knowledge, as Pieper puts it, was a purely receptive looking, a gazing upon reality. And that was the kind of knowledge that the ancients and the medievals prized. We might think of it in terms of contemplation. For the modern philosophy, however, the only kind of knowledge is the first kind of knowledge. It is the one that depends on our activity, not being receptive to things, but going outward, sort of taking them in hand and examining them, dissecting them, perhaps. And obviously, as that very word dissecting indicates, this kind of knowledge favors the hard sciences over such things as 
literature, philosophy, and certainly theology. It favors the knowledge of science over wisdom, what we can determine for ourselves over what we can receive. Francis Bacon is reputed to have advocated, quote, putting nature on the rack and torturing her to reveal her secrets. There's some dispute whether or not he really wrote those words, but apparently his reputation was such that they've been applied to him repeatedly. And it does give a nice sort of summary of the modern view of knowledge. It is dependent on us to do it. We will not allow nature just to reveal herself to us in sort of a gazing at nature and contemplation, but the only kind of knowledge we'll take is this sort of active one. Second, and is perhaps already clear, this kind of knowledge is associated with effort, with labor, even with suffering. This is how Joseph Pieper puts it. The innermost meaning of this overemphasis on effort appears to be this, that man mistrusts everything that is without effort, that in good conscience he can, only, he can own only what he himself has reached through painful effort, that he refuses to let himself be given anything. And this makes sense in light of the first principle. If the only real kind of knowledge is that, that we kind of accomplish, then the greater pains we take to accomplish it means it's, it's more highly prized, more highly valued. And notice here an implicit suspicion and perhaps an even hostility towards what has come before, the knowledge that preceded us and has been handed down to us. Discovery is valued over tradition because discovery is ours. It's what we do. And tradition, of course, is received. The medievals knew that they were standing on the shoulders of giants. Any good philosopher today knows that, that the best parts of his philosophy are not what he's discovered, but what he's received and assimilated. And the third point Pieper makes is that knowledge has come to be valued only insofar as it has some utility. That is, that knowledge is valued that serves some concrete material or economic person in society. Now this might sound like sour grapes from Father Scalia, who was a classics major, and, and had to endure years of people saying, classics, what are you gonna do with that? Yeah. <laughs> And it's just coincidence or providence that I'm actually in a line of work that, to which Latin and Greek actually are useful. <laughs> Nevertheless, this is a departure from the traditional view of knowledge and of education. Previously, education and knowledge were sought for their own sake. This is where we get the term the liberal arts. Those arts were liberal. They were free. They were independent of any utility or use by others. In other, words, in other words, they were nobody's servants. They had a value in themselves. And that's why the liberal arts were so important. It is knowledge for its own sake. Not demeaning or certainly not rejecting the importance of that kind of knowledge that can be put to use in society but recognizing that there's another kind that is important, in fact, more important. The goal of liberal arts was not to accomplish, achieve, or produce this or that. The goal was to grasp reality itself, to know. And consider how the liberal arts today are, well, they're either entirely neglected. Uh, most of our schools don't really give as much weight to history or literature, philosophy, as they will to the hard sciences. Most of our elementary and middle and high schools focus on STEM, right? Science, technology, engineering, math. We prize science over wisdom. We learn how things work, but we don't ask why they exist in the first place. And then ironically, What's left in the liberal arts departments in most colleges and universities 
is dominated by those who are culturally and politically, well, liberals, and who now use the liberal arts, use them, the very thing that they was not meant to happen to them, they are now used for whatever agenda you want to bring to bear on society. So that is the situation now as, as regards knowledge. Before moving to the next section, I just want to re reiterate these three things because they're the motif that Joseph Pieper uses throughout this great little work. And they're important for us in understanding the argument that he's making. Knowledge has become first exclusively active. We know now by our own activity, not by receiving. Second, we value knowledge according to the effort, the labor, and even the suffering that is putting, put into achieving it. And third, we value knowledge to the extent that it is useful for the here and now, for society. And if society does not find it useful, then there's no need for it whatsoever. The next section that he gets into is on leisure itself. This is a talk about leisure, and so now it might be the time to define it. Uh, perhaps I've been taking my time. I've been going too leisurely. Sorry. <laughs> Pieper describes leisure according to the three points that I just listed, and it really helps us to understand what leisure is. Uh, because we have a lot of mistaken notions about it. We think that it's just you know, kind of lounging around and doing nothing, but it is something much more profound, much deeper than just that. So what does it mean? First, leisure means a certain stillness. Leisure is, Pieper says, an inner absence of preoccupation, a calm, an ability to let things go, to be quiet. And this is the opposite of the modern demand for activity, for going outward, for doing. Leisure has the capacity to receive, to be still, and allow the world, and allow the mystery of life really to reveal itself. Leisure is found not just in, God knows, watching TV, uh, but it's found in simple things that we've all experienced and we all know, uh, sitting on perhaps a nice summer day and just listening, just being still, being aware of the sounds around us, the cicadas in the tree perhaps, or the, you know, a breeze, if there is one, uh, thing, <laughs> and, and just allowing that to, and not feeling the, the need to figure it all out and to dissect what we're experiencing, but just to, to be there and to allow all, all of that to happen around us. This is very different from what we call vegging out. <laughs> that modern phenomenon is characterized by a consumerist mentality. This is the difference between, for example, going to a museum and standing before a beautiful work of art and just appreciating it, just appreciating the beauty of it. Not trying to figure it all out, just appreciating the beauty of it. The difference between that and watching TV. We are consuming things when we're watching videos and TV and all the rest. And in a certain sense, we are being consumed. But in the first, in that just simple contemplation of a, of a work of art, we, we are appreciating something and we're allowing it to be what it is and to reveal itself to us. The couch potato, even though he's called a potato, consumes food and entertainment, but is really deaf to reality. In fact, a lot of the entertainment is designed to keep reality from intruding. Second, Leisure requires a celebratory spirit or attitude. This is how Pieper puts it. Leisure is the condition of considering things in a celebrating spirit. 
Leisure is only possible in the assumption that man is not only in harmony with himself, but also that he is in agreement with the world and its meaning. And this, again, is opposed to the modern emphasis on the effort and suffering endured in achieving something. Leisure comes when we affirm that the world is good because God created it, and we appreciate the goodness. We, and we affirm that we are good because God created us, and we appreciate the goodness that he's given us. Leisure is happy to receive this reality and to celebrate it. Notice this element of Pieper's definition of leisure. It is possible only when you are in harmony with yourself. And who of us can deny that, right? We know that when we are at odds with ourselves, when we are in sin, most of all, leisure is not possible. We cannot rest because of our preoccupation and our worry and because we are at odds with ourselves and because that sin has blinded us to what God wants us to receive which is the very affirmation of our goodness. Third, and perhaps most importantly, leisure is useless. Pieper says, leisure is not there for the sake of work. The power to be at leisure is the power to step beyond the working world. Notice he talks about the power to be at leisure, which indicates this is more than just doing nothing. This takes some effort on our part to carve out those times and places where we are going to be at rest. And that quote requires a correction of thinking on our part. We typically think that we rest in order to work. And that's how we treat the Sabbath. The Sabbath, or the weekend in general, becomes just a time to catch our breath so we, we can get to, to real life, which we regard as work. No, not at all, because that makes leisure dependent on work. It makes work the determining factor of all of this. So those three things characterize leisure, that stillness, uh, the uselessness, the, the third aspect, and then the celebratory spirit. So. How better can we understand this by comparing, than by comparing it to its opposite, which is not work? Because work is a virtue, industriousness. God placed us in this world to work, to keep the garden, and to till it. And so work is not a bad thing. In its proper place, it is a very good thing. But like every virtue, once it's removed from its proper place, it becomes a vice. No, the opposite of leisure is not work, but sloth, what the ancients called achadia. Achadia is, is not just not working. It is a boredom with the world. And it's sort of leisure's counterfeit. Most people think that they are just kind of, they're, they're at leisure when really, no, they're being slothful. Uh, they, they think they're, they're at rest when really they're vegging out. The devil always apes the things of God. He always tries to set up some counterfeit to draw us away from what, the good that God has given us. And Achadia really is sort of the counterfeit of leisure, trying to convince us that it is what we seek when really it is leading us further and further away from leisure. And we can understand sloth or achadia by way of those three dimensions of, of leisure. First of all, the stillness. There is something about the slothful man that is not at rest. He's not at peace with himself, uh, St. Thomas Aquinas says. He doesn't like the Sabbath <laughs> because God is the one who puts us at, at peace with ourselves. And so, Sloth really is this restlessness. And so it becomes a great deal of doing, of keeping up activity because to be alone with one's thoughts is unnerving. So much of the busy work that people engage in is not really work that is useful to anyone. 
It is rather a way of trying to escape from the quiet that makes us confront ourselves. So sloth lacks that, that stillness that, that, should be, uh, that, that should characterize leisure. Second, it's not a celebratory spirit. It is the boredom that has come to characterize so much of our culture. Chesterton says, there is one sin to call a green leaf gray. To look at God's creation and be bored by it. To look at the, the greenness of a, a leaf and to say, ah, it's just gray. It's dull and drab and humdrum. To look at, the, at everything that is exciting in the world and to yawn at it. The one who is dominated by sloth cannot celebrate and the irony is, is that he bounces from thing to thing, trying to satisfy a desire that is deep within him to celebrate. But because he's not at peace with himself, he can't do that. And again, he doesn't like the Sabbath. The Sabbath is not just to rest. It is to rest in God. Notice what Scripture says about the first Sabbath. God rested from the work that he was doing. And most of all, when, most of us, when we rest on the Sabbath, it is in order to do more work. And that's the man of sloth. He just wants more time off so that he can rest up to do more work, not so that he can actually encounter God. The celebratory spirit is lacking in that. And third, the man of sloth, well, he's allowed work to determine his schedule, the rhythm of his life. And if something can't be useful, he, be, he grows to panic. Now what, he thinks. Sloth is really what is uh, at the root of so much of the immoral internet activity that characterizes our culture. Rather than being at peace with our thoughts, rather than trying to examine things, rather than encountering reality, we, take, we, we divert ourselves. We try to amuse and entertain ourselves with whatever is near at hand. And so TV years ago and now the internet or whatever handheld device there is, it is right there to distract us when reality might be trying to get through to us, when God might be tapping us on the shoulder in, in order to reveal himself to us and us to ourselves. Be still and know that I am God, the psalm says. Or, as Pieper has an alternate translation in his book, be at rest and know that I am God. So how do we get out of this situation? We are in a total work culture. We don't know how to enter into rest properly. We don't know how to have that leisure properly. How do we get out of it? The last section of Pieper's book is all about worship because worship is really what, what enables leisure. And I know this is counterintuitive to a lot of you because going to Mass doesn't seem leisurely, does it? Right? Especially if you have young kids. Right? <laughs> but it is worship, yes, in the Mass, but also just more broadly speaking. Setting aside both time and space that the world would call useless, setting it aside, and therefore the primacy of sacrifice. We have to sacrifice time. We have to sacrifice space in order to really realize who we are. A great example of this in the secular world is the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier or a full military honors funeral. Think of all the waste involved in those two things, the manpower, that is wasted, all of the resources that are wasted there? Would anyone say that? Of course not. We recognize that, the, that those are resources and manpower well used. Even though they don't serve any direct purpose to the nation, they don't build up the economy, they're not establishing peace anywhere, but we know in a patriotic spirit that those are necessary for the life of the nation. On a higher level, for us, as Catholics, as men and women, as God's creatures, 
we need to sacrifice time and sacrifice space to be at rest, to do something useless. The Mass is the greatest example of this. The Mass fulfills all three of those things that leisure is. First of all, well, <laughs> there should be the stillness at Mass. I know it's not always there, okay? But what do we hear at Mass? Behold the Lamb of God. Isn't this the great counter to the modern philosophical mind? Behold, don't try to conquer this with your own mind. Don't analyze this, but behold it. Behold, gaze upon this reality of the Lamb of God. That is how the Mass, in one way, leads us to the proper way of thinking, uh, that, that proper manner of knowledge the intellectus, the, the gazing upon something in order to appreciate the reality, not to conquer it, but to receive it. Behold the Lamb of God. Blessed are those who are called to the supper of the Lamb. Blessed are those who are called to that place which is eternal rest. Heaven is not eternal work. Speak to God. Heaven is not eternal television. Okay. <laughs> It is eternal rest, it, it is eternity of gazing upon God. And unless we carve out time in this world to gaze upon our Lord, especially in the Eucharist, then we will not be fit yet for heaven. Mass fulfills the celebratory spirit that leisure calls for. Mass is a celebration. Yes, we have the, we have the penitential rite, we have penitential days, we have penitential seasons. But at the heart of the Mass is the affirmation and the celebration of everything that God has accomplished and the giving thanks to Him of everything that He has done as both Creator and Redeemer. It is the Eucharist, the thanksgiving that is offered to the Father through, with, and in the Son. It is that celebra celebratory spirit. And, and notice, we even sing when we're in a penitential season, right? In fact, some of the most beautiful hymns or chants that we have in the Catholic tradition come during Lent. I mean, how many people enjoy Lent more than, you know, other seasons of the year? Everybody, it's a crazy thing. We say, gosh, I'm really glad Lent's here. <laughs> <laughs> because we, we, we recognize that what, what is this doing? This is leading us to a celebration, but first it's restoring us to ourselves. It's a time of penance so that we can be in harmony with ourselves and celebrate what God has done for us, what God has, God has done to us, how He has transformed us. The slothful man hates the Sabbath. He doesn't see anything worth celebrating. and He's terrified of resting in God. Mass, that celebration, should be, should lead us more and more. Which is not to say that slothful people don't go to Mass. We've all seen them there, right? <laughs> they look pretty grim, all right? But Mass should always lead us to that, to that deeper celebration. And third, the Mass is useless, absolutely useless. It is a waste of time. And I hope many of you waste that time every day. There's that great scene in A Man for All Seasons when Henry VIII is coming to, to make a surprise call on, on Thomas More. And of course, it's not a surprise at all. They know he's coming, and he's the king. Um, and uh, Thomas More is, uh, he's not there. <laughs> and he comes racing at the last, last minute, and uh, his wife kind of scolds him, says, well, the king doesn't visit every day. And he says, yes, but I go to Vespers uh, every day, <laughs> which is great. He's going and wasting time, but just go going, going to worship. Uh, we, we need to do that, and we're very often, I think, made to feel guilty for doing that. So well, what, what exactly does that accomplish? And honestly, we, we, we have to be honest with ourselves that sometimes it doesn't seem like it accomplishes anything, does it? I mean, look at the world. <laughs> it's an act of faith. We trust that this has accomplished something. And just the very act of setting aside that time to, to celebrate what he has accomplished, to be still with him, that has an effect on our souls. But we never want to reduce the Mass to some utilitarian purpose. 
th there's a teaching component to the Mass, but it's not a lecture. There's great music at the Mass, we hope, um, <laughs> but it's not a concert. There should be a great inspiration at the Mass, but it's not a pep rally. But I think we, we've all perhaps heard or maybe encountered when the Mass is reduced to a lecture, a concert, or a pep rally. It can't be any of those things. We are to allow the Mass to be what it is. Again, that, that receiving. We receive the Mass. We don't create it. We don't dominate it. We don't manipulate it for our own ends. There is the counter to the modern philosophical mind. We regard it as something useless. The great um, writer of the last, uh, well, I guess, yeah, the last century, Romano Guardini, who wrote a um, wonderful book, um, The Spirit of the Liturgy, which Cardinal Ratzinger thought was so good, he wrote a book called The Spirit of the Liturgy, right? <laughs> so, um, and he has this to say. He's right, it's a chapter called The Playfulness of the Liturgy. The Playfulness. Have you ever thought of that? And this is an excursus. <laughs> One of the signs of a lack of leisure in our culture is the lack of play. When do children play? Increasingly, the only time they play is when it's organized by adults. And especially in our area of, of the country, the only time it's organized by adults is when it's going to be useful to the kids for getting into college or on their resume or whatever else. But how often do we find just play for no reason other than just to play? And here's an excursus within an excursus. Uh, baseball. This, this, is, this is a great lament. Uh, we used to speak of taking in a game. Taking in a game. What are you doing? You're, you're not there to dominate the game. You're taking it in. You're receiving it. There's that, that, that mode of knowledge that the ancients prized. You're, you're taking it in. The, you, you go to a game and, and just you let it be the game, and you take it in. And now, unfortunately, baseball, is, there has to be entertainment at every moment. There's no downtime between the inning. The inning ends, and now you've got something else going on. And between batters, you've got the music and, and all of this. There's no opportunity now. It was never called a sport. It was a pastime. It was our national pastime. With all due respect to baseball players, I know it's a sport, right? <laughs> but there was something about it that appealed to our desire for leisure. You went there. You took it in. You sat with somebody who, you know, dear to you, and you, you, know, you chatted between the innings or between batters, whatever else. And there was something about that that valued play for its own sake, not for any other utilitarian purpose. And so also in the liturgy. This is what Romano, Romano Guardini is getting at when he talks about the playfulness of the liturgy. We just have to appreciate it for what it is. And he writes, it is in this very aspect of the liturgy, its playfulness, that its didactic aim is to be found, that of teaching the soul not to see purposes everywhere, not to be conscious of the end it wishes to attain, not to be desirous of being over-clever and grown up, but to understand simplicity in life. The soul must learn to abandon, at least in prayer, the restlessness of purposeful activity. It must learn to waste time for the sake of God and to be prepared for the sacred game with sayings and thoughts and gestures without always immediately asking why and wherefore. It must learn not to be continually yearning to do something, to attack something, to accomplish something useful, but to play the divinely ordered game of the liturgy in liberty and beauty and holy joy before God. That is befitting of children of God. A lot of times people come to Mass and they try to figure it all out. Uh, no, just let the Mass be the Mass. I, I was at Father Hezekiah's uh, ordination and I understood about an eighth of it. <laughs> <laughs> It was a beautiful liturgy, and I just, uh, going in, I said, you know what, I'm not going to try to figure it out. <laughs> but it, it, was, it, was a, it was a beautiful thing, just appreciating that. There's a wonderful Raphael at the National Gallery of Art. Uh, it's one of his most famous, Madonna and Child with John the Baptist. It's set in, 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 in a field. And you can analyze it and see just how perfectly proportioned everything is. And, and, and how all of the shapes are in harmony and everything, and you can examine the colors and all of that. But you shouldn't, 
you should just stand in front of it and appreciate it for what it is. And so what does this mean? Well, certain things have to change for us. First, how do we rest? What is restful? It, it shouldn't be just doing, uh, it shouldn't be vegging out, and the, the doing nothing in, in that sense. It, it should be resting the mind, re resting the body, but in a way that is not shutting us down, in a way that is opening us to reality, a way that is listening and hearing uh, what is real and true in the world. How do we approach education? I think one of the greatest disservices we, we've done as, uh, as a society is we have made education a completely utilitarian project, that there's no sense of being educated just for the sake of being educated, just for the sake of knowing reality more. That, that's, that's a greatness all, on itself. This is not to disparage the importance of, yes, getting, getting a, a job and, and knowing how to, to make a living, but it is possible, I've seen it done, where people can actually have gainful employment and be well-educated in, in, in the liberal arts sense of it. <laughs> That's what we should be striving for. And this is what we should really be attentive to with, with our, our children. Unfortunately, we are putting a lot of them just on, on, on the treadmill. It's the rat race. Why should they go to school and get an education? so that they can get into college. Why a good college, right? Why should they get into a good college? So they can get a good job. Why should they get, get, a, get a good job? So they can get, make money. Why should they make money? So they can send their kids to good colleges, yeah. right? <laughs> so we have to rethink that. And we have to rethink the Sabbath. I'm not gonna ask for a show of hands, but wonder how many of you went shopping today. Okay. Uh, I remember years ago I was visiting um, uh, the island of Malta, which is a very Catholic island, and uh, it, was a, um, it was the eve of their great feast, which is the shipwreck of St. Paul, which is great, because all of history turns, at least the Maltese think, I'm sorry, uh, okay. Um, <laughs> All of history turns on St. Paul being shipwrecked on Malta. And um, so it was the eve of the feast, and there was this huge line at the gas station. Because people were filling up on gas. Why? Because all the gas stations were going to be closed the next day. Because all the stores were going to be closed the next day. Because everybody on the island the next day was going to rest. And I remember a uh, person I was with said, well, that's, that's kind of ridiculous. They should keep them open. I said, well, you know, <laughs> you make laws for the weak, not for the strong, right? <laughs> and, uh, and what happens when all of these places are open all the time, as they are in our culture? Uh, those who are poor do not have rest. They are working when they really should be resting. And, the, and, and any priest who has had an apostolate with the Hispanic community in, in our area, uh, he's heard this in the confessional, not being able to get to Mass. Why? Because I, I, I have to work. And, and it's not just I want to work, but I have to. With the white-collar uh, workers in our area, it's not I have to work, but I want to work. Perhaps I want to be interrupted because I don't want God to get too close to me on the Sabbath. I want to conclude uh, with a poem, but before I get there, let me just go over a brief bibliography. Some of them are on your paper, but poor Monica, I think I sent her three or four drafts of this. I, dent I didn't send her the fifth and the sixth. <laughs> but I recommend to you Dies Domini, John Paul II's letter on the Sabbath. The Abolition of Man by C.S. Lewis. I know anybody who comes to Institute of Catholic Culture lectures has already read that repeatedly, right? Uh, the Abolition of Man, get, it, it addresses this, this, this change of, of thinking or viewing thinking in modernity. The Noonday Devil, Achadia 
The Unnamed Evil of Our Time by Jean-Charles Nault, a uh, French Benedictine abbot. Excellent book. Um, it will make you feel terrible. I recommend it. <laughs> Fighting the Noonday Devil by Rusty Reno at First Things. Uh, this, so this is 13 years ago that he wrote this, but it's an excellent piece. And he brings out very powerfully how sloth really is the sin of our times. And it really is inclining us to graver sins. It's a point that uh, the, the Noonday Devil book makes uh, more broadly. Um, if you want the short version, you can read uh, Rusty Reno. It'll make you feel just as terrible, don't worry. <laughs> Two more that aren't on the list. Edward Lean uh, has a great book called What is Education? What is Education? I recommend it to you highly. And then uh, a book that I confess I didn't read it, I listened to it, but still, it's good. <laughs> the Shallows by Nicholas Carr, How the Internet is Rewiring Our Brains. And he, I, I think what he discusses in that book, uh, I, I, I think it has a lot to do with what we're facing today as regards this absence of leisure and our, our, our domination by sloth. You know, one of the points he makes in that book is how people in our culture, increasing with the internet, we have outsourced our memory. Or the, the, the internet, as some describe it, is the outboard memory. How many phone numbers did you used to know? <laughs> how many do you know now? And, and how many times do we think, I don't need to hold on to that information because I can always Google it? Memory for St. Augustine especially, is one of the most important dimensions of the human person. You know, traditionally we speak of the image of the triune God in the human soul as by way of the memory, the intellect, and the will. That the will images the, the Holy Spirit, the intellect images the Logos, God the Son, and the memory images God the Father. Increasingly, we lack memory. I mean, literally, I feel it. <laughs> but I think just uh, as a society, we don't value the capacity to remember, which gets back to that point about the way we think. What kind of knowledge is valued? It is that knowledge which we uh, make for our own, uh, not that we receive. And memory is the capacity to recall, to receive again the wisdom that has been handed down through the centuries, through the millennia. So I'm going to close with a, a poem. It'll be available, I guess, miraculously somehow uh, at the end of the lecture. Um, and then we can um, open for questions for a bit. This is a poem called, uh, entitled Sleep by the French poet of the last century, Charles Peguy. And yet they tell me there are men who don't sleep. I don't like the man who doesn't sleep, says God. Sleep is the friend of man. Sleep is the friend of God. Sleep may be my most beautiful creation, and I too rested on the seventh day. He whose heart is pure sleeps, and he who sleeps has a pure heart. This is the great secret to being as infatigable as a child, to have that strength in your legs that a child has those new legs, those new souls, and to start over every morning always new, like the young, like the new hope. Yes, they tell me there are men who work well and who sleep poorly, who don't sleep. What a lack of confidence in me. It's almost worse than if they worked poorly but slept well, than if they worked but didn't sleep, because sloth is no worse, than, is no worse sin than anxiety. In fact, it's even a less serious sin than anxiety and then despair, and then a lack of confidence in me. I'm not talking, says God, about those men who don't work and don't sleep. Those men are sinners, it goes without saying. I'm talking about those who work and don't sleep. I pity them. I hold it against them, a bit. They don't trust me. As a child lies innocently in his mother's arms, thus they do not lie. 
innocently in the hands of my providence. They have the courage to work. They don't have the courage to do nothing. They possess the virtue of work. They don't possess the virtue of doing nothing, of relaxing, of resting, of sleeping. Unhappy people, they don't know what's good. Thank you. Could you just tell us the name of that book and the author again? Joseph, Joseph Pieper. Pieper, P-I-E-P-E-R. -E -E and the name of the book is the name of the talk. Leisure, the Basis of Culture. Little tongue-in-cheek here. Um, <laughs> I figured. Leisure, and would you care to comment on the use of charcoal versus propane? <laughs> That's modernism. You've got to be cooking with wood. He knows what he's doing. <laughs> this, this was a theological debate that uh, raged in the rectory of St. Rita uh, in 2004 or 5. Uh, Father Donahue, that modernist, um, <laughs> advocated uh, a gas grill. I, of course, advocated charcoal. To settle the debate, I emailed um, Anthony Esselin up at Providence College, and he sent back, and I still have it somewhere, a Thomistic proof for the superiority of charcoal <laughs> in Latin. Uh, and his, and, and the, uh, the said contra was uh, post-resurrectionum suum, dominus uh, demandavi. Uh, after our Lord's resurrection, he presented fish cooked on a charcoal fire. <laughs> you know, actually, and, but to the point of, of, of this evening's talk, um, you know, there is something about starting the fire and tending the fire that a gas grill just doesn't get to, okay? But, uh, right, so that, that's the, you know what side I'd fall on, okay? <laughs> so, hi, Father. Um, I'm in the uh, untenable position of being on the Fairfax County School Board um, and being a Catholic. And one of the things that um, I'm seeing with leisure and something that I'm looking for the Catholic Church to do is to create some digital guidance to parents and to children on digital citizenship and how we try to capture back and use um, digital tools wisely but within the confines of the faith. And certainly something like the Institute could work on that or people who have the ear of the Catholic Church on providing um, guidance for digital tools. Is that something that you think is a good idea? Uh, well, I think absolutely we have to re rethink um, uh, the, the use of them in the classrooms and everything. Uh, I, I mean, most kids already know how to use them, so why, I'm not sure why you know, we need them in the schools as much as we do. Um, and uh, uh, th this, I think, also gets to um, educational fads that we, I mean, you know, we seem to be chasing the latest one, and it's a great danger. Um, and uh, the most basic educational tools are, the, you know, the, the same as they've always been, you know. And it doesn't matter really how good the um, the device is if the person using it doesn't have the capacity to think properly. Um, you know, any tools is as good as uh, only as good as as the one who uses it. And also, um, we need, the Knights of Columbus uh, published a great little pamphlet called uh, Technology and the New Evangelization. Great little uh, th thing. And, and one of the points it makes, and this is very important, um, technology is not neutral. It's morally neutral. An iPhone is not morally bad. Uh, but it's not neutral in the, in the effects that it has on us. Any tool begins to uh, determine the user in some way. If I'm wielding a hammer in my right hand, I no longer 
have use of my right hand in the same way. The hammer has determined that. Uh, one of the, the points of that book, The Shallows, is precisely this, that a lot of the technology is determining the way that we think. And um, so we, we really do have to be uh, very conscious that the technology is not neutral in the effect that it has on us. Uh, so yes, we, we certainly need more, a, a whole lot more um, uh, on that. And um, T.C. Williams, this is about, I don't know, 10 years ago, T.C. Williams um, went through this huge overhaul and was made the most technologically sophisticated and advanced school, I think, in the nation for a day, <laughs> you know, until the next one opened. Um, but, and there was an article in the Washington Post shortly after that by, uh, by uh, a teacher at T.C. Williams saying this has not been a good thing. Uh, because children do not learn how to engage a text the same way. Uh, I mean, it's ironic that we call it texting because we're getting more and more away from text. Uh, the capacity to research is not, this is an interesting point that Nicholas Carr makes in The Shallows, is that you would think that uh, the research would be more in depth because we have so much more online, but actually um, you know, th that when they've looked at like um, professional journal articles from maybe 30 years ago compared to today, the ones 30 years ago had, had um, you know, more references, more footnotes, and were sort of you know, linked to more other things as we would say today. So that there's a lot that needs to be done there. I, so I recommend, recommend that, first that book by Nicholas Carr and then also that little pamphlet. Um, you can find it online, Technology and the New Evangelization. You can use your Google machine. <laughs> Father, we have a, qu a related question um, uh, coming in online from Stephen Keating, uh, watching from Prince Edward Island, Canada, who says, do you have any thoughts on how we might apply Peeper's idea of leisure to the education of our young, particularly in our Catholic schools? Yeah. Um, Yeah, in, in, in school, I mean, I think, in my experience anyway, being at, at parishes with schools, the Catholic playground is still sort of, the kids go out there and they, they, they create games, <laughs> you know, and they're not organized. And I think that's great. That's something very, very good, and, and there should, should be that, that, that wonder. What we should be instilling in, in, in Catholic schools is the capacity to wonder, the capacity to wonder. That was one of the quotes uh, on the sheet that, that, that I put there is that uh, St. Thomas says that the poet and the philosopher have this in common, that they're trying, that, that they begin with wonder, basically. And that's how all thought begins, huh? Nascantur um, and admiratione. They are, let them be born in wonder. All thought begins with looking at the world and, and being amazed by it, being in wonder. Uh, and so we, we need, Catholic schools need to, need to cultivate that. Um, and, you know, honestly, our science classes should be different. I mean, not that we're, you know, gra gravity's still the same, right? Um, but um, but it, it, it should begin with the, the wonder of things and should also lead back to that. But, it's, you know, it's going to be the families more than the schools. Uh, what does the family vacation look like? If the fa family vacation is just go, go, go all the time and we've got all of these projects and the kids are busy all the time, they've got no opportunity to wonder. They don't have any downtime to do that. And so the first, the first thing that's needed in order to cultivate proper leisure is the time. And, and if, if we're, we're filling every last second when children are you know, not in school, then there's a problem. So um, one question is around worship. When you talked about sacrifice time, and you talked about sacrifice space. Yes, so the sacrifice of space. Well, the, the story of John, of then Carol, Wojtyla in Krakow, you know, the Soviets had built the, you know, this, this workers' city, right? And it had everything that, that, uh, that a human could want, except, of course, a church. There's no church there. Uh, I think you can really gauge the health of the society by what are they setting aside for, um, for those deeper things about the human person. And so, yeah, there has to be the sacrifice of space in order to, well, create beautiful churches, right? Uh, in your home, is there, is, there, is there a place? It doesn't necessarily need to be, you shouldn't have a church in your home, you shouldn't have a tabernacle, okay? Um, but uh, is there a place in your home that is just for quiet? I remember growing up, there, like, like, like the living room and the, and the den, like th those are sort of off limits for just regular daily use. It was, it was only for special occasions, and if somebody's in the den, you know, it's not rowdy, it's quiet. So there should be that distinction. So, um, 
And then obviously sacrifice, the sacrifice of time by way of um, you know, setting aside hours and days um, to uh, not to work and, and really to, to reflect on ourselves, on, on our Lord, and be, and be with one another. Uh, but the, yeah, the sacrifice of space, I mean, it's, it's amazing how quickly Northern Virginia continues to expand. And, you know, we have kind of a capitalist version of the same thing, is that we're building and building and building and building, and we're not really setting aside a whole lot of room for churches, right? And come on, our shopping malls have more marble than our churches. That's a problem. <laughs> Some time ago, <clears throat> perhaps uh, 10, 20 years ago, I recall French students demonstrated against their government because the government was trying to force more of them into STEM-like courses. And they said, no, we love our liberal arts <laughs> programs. Do you recall this? And do you know where that stands today? I, I have no recollection of it. But it, I, it, I mean, it, it sounds like the French, right? I mean, it just, <laughs> it's just, um, I, I mean, and kudos to them for it. I, it just, it just, you know, I love, um, you know, uh, reading uh, Jacques Martin, or no, um, uh, who did, um, Viper's Tangle, Francois Mauriac, and, um, and then in Bernano's Diary of a Country Priest, where, you know, every French peasant is an existential philosopher, you know? <laughs> so it doesn't, I, I hadn't heard about that, but it's, uh, yeah. And, right, to liberate uh, education from just being, becoming, and, and you know what happens when, when education is just at the service of something else, and that's the only reason for education? <laughs> it's the, ultimately going to be the government. It's going to be at the service of the government. That's ultimately what happens. And so the liberal arts are not just, I mean, you see the real world effects of, of these things. When we say there has to be a segment of education that is useless, that is not purposeful, that is just for the sake of knowledge, and that sort of gets it you know, out of the government's hands, hopefully. Same thing with worship. There are places and there are times and in which we, we say that, you know, the government uh, does not have control over this. This is why, I mean, we're living in some very challenging times right now as regards religious freedom. And the first and most important thing uh, we do in the face of it is pray and worship. Because that, that is, when we do that, we are, we are establishing certain areas in which we say to the government thus far, no further. So. Thank you, Father Scott. Thank you. Thank you. We'll conclude in prayer, if you'll please stand. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. O oh, you who have granted us to pray together in harmony, and who promised that when two or three are gathered to call upon your name, you will give what they ask. Do you now fulfill what your servants ask, so far as it is good, granting us in this world the knowledge of your truth, and in the world to come eternal life? For you are good, O our God, and you love mankind, and we render glory to you, to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.